Hello, fellow Kentuckians and other friends, and welcome to a new edition of my old Kentucky podcast. My name is Robert Connie, and joining me, as always, is Jasmine Smith. Jasmine, can, can you hear me okay? I can hear you. All right. Yeah, we're, we're, dealing, we're, we're dealing with technical difficulties, but we're powering through. Jasmine can hear me barely, so uh, we are going to be talking about plenty of stuff. Uh, I've got a couple stories. One is about Jacqueline Coleman. Another one is about a, a potential abortion bill that may be making its way through the uh, legislature next year. Uh, we're going to talk a little bit about COVID, and Jasmine is going to be talking to us about the uh, strike at Heaven Hill. So that's what we're mainly talking about today, but we also want to wrap up our Patreon focus. Today is the last I guess Wednesday in October, so it's the last time we're going to be doing the drawing. Uh, it is very close to both mine and Jasmine's birthday. So even though our t-shirt giveaway is about to end, you can still continue to give on Patreon uh, as little as a dollar a month. Of course, that will also get you access to the Border Bonanza series that we are doing. We ha have the first one posted. Uh, we have uh, a second one kind of in the works uh, we'll be talking about that more later in, in upcoming episodes, but be sure to be on the lookout for that. So please continue to support us if you can. And right now, we're going to do the drawing for the last t-shirt. Jasmine, are you ready to do it? I'm ready. All right, I'm going to hit the button. And it is Steel Roos. All right. Again, somebody we don't know super well, but has been a supporter for quite a long time. So, Steel, very happy that you have uh, won. We will be in touch very soon. And, uh, yeah, we'll be excited to to get you that T-shirt. So, uh, Jasmine, that's exciting stuff. We have, I think, three winners, three T-shirts that we gave away. How are you feeling about the T-shirt the, the situation? Are you yeah, I'm going to do one big order and order shirts and get them mailed out to our winners and then maybe one day they'll be available for more people. Maybe one day. Uh, yes, so that's a little bit of a teaser. So be on the lookout. You may have the opportunity, if you are not a winner, to get your own T-shirt at some point in the future. So, all right, with that being said, let's go ahead and jump into some of the things we want to talk about. I guess the best place to start this week is at the top of the notes, which is about Jacqueline Coleman. So Jacqueline Coleman is, of course, Kentucky's lieutenant governor. And a few weeks ago, we did a quick hit about her. Um, Eric Hires, who's closely connected with Andy Bashir's campaigns, he announced that Jacqueline Coleman would remain on Governor Bashir's ticket during his reelection campaign. And Jasmine, we thought that that was a little bit interesting, right? Because uh, there was there were some rumors that were swirling about Jacqueline Coleman's potential future, right? I heard the rumors from you. You, so. you heard them from me. Yes. Well, the rumors, there were several rumors that were swirling around uh, saying that she would be moved off of the ticket, but potentially remain in her capacity as education cabinet secretary. Uh, and it turns out that that rumor couldn't have been more incorrect because the real major piece of news is that Jacqueline Coleman is going to be leaving her post at the education and workforce development cabinet. And her deputy, Mary Pat Reagan, is going to be promoted to secretary. So, uh, the the intel that I was hearing, um, which I didn't trust anyway, uh, was was way <laughs> off base. So that is something uh, that was going on. I, I do think it's it's worth noting, right, that that this is going on, and, and Andy Bashir and Jacqueline Coleman are trying to work this all out uh, in the first election since there was a change in state law. That means that gubernatorial candidates do not have to name a lieutenant governor candidate until after 
the primary. I think that this is going to have a huge impact on the Republican primary because I, you know, every other time that we've done this, I think going back to the the early '90s, where the the governor and the lieutenant governor have run on a slate together, they've had to name them as they they get going. Uh, you know, they have to name them ahead of time. And, uh, you know, that that's caused a little bit of consternation. You know, we there were some people who we thought were sure, surely going to run, but had delayed announcing. And some people had said, well, maybe it's because they had somebody lined up to run for lieutenant governor, but they said no. It's tough to get like a powerhouse team because a lot of people want to run for governor themselves and want to give it their own shot. So now now you can wait until after the primary and you can name one of your primary opponents as as your running mate. Uh, that's something that can certainly happen now. And it, and it kind of had been the case in the past that lieutenant governor candidates had been a little bit more unknown, kind of plucked from maybe obscurity. Mm-hmm. I mean, Jacqueline Coleman had run for state house in the past and had been active in the teacher movement, but hadn't really been, um, you know, high up in, in government office until then. Uh, not like, say, a Rocky Adkins or like an Adam Edelin, you know, two people who, if this law had been in place in 2019, would have been potential people that I would have been looking at for, I mean, I think of you know Andy Bashir and Rocky Atkins. I think that's just what it would have been. But that's not that's not how it went then. This time is a little different. So what we will actually see in, in the gubernatorial election is that Andy Bashir will be running basically by himself in the primary. Once the primary is over, all signs point to Jacqueline Coleman joining him on the ticket again. So the lieutenant governor, though, the lieutenant governor doesn't have a lot of constitutionally enumerated responsibilities, and the job really looks different based on who's in it. So Lieutenant Governor Steve Pence, uh, who served under Ernie Fletcher, I forgot his name in a recent show, but Steve Pence, like like Coleman, he served in a dual role as a cabinet secretary. He was the Justice and Public Safety Cabinet Secretary. And yeah, he uh, he got so sick and tired of Ernie Fletcher in the middle of uh, the term they were serving together that he said he didn't want to run on the ticket with him again and was then fired from his cabinet secretary post. So that's a thing that happened. Um, Lieutenant Governors Daniel Mangiardo and Steve Henry, they both ran for Senate while Lieutenant Governor. So that's, you know, some people see it kind of more as a launching pad towards further success. Of course, it was not successful for either one of those two people. Um, Jerry Abramson and Crit Lou Allen also served as lieutenant governors. Uh, they were both Democrats, but but they didn't have a larger named role. Like they weren't cabinet secretaries, but they were both people who took on big special projects that got a lot of publicity and, and did a lot of good work. They were kind of like policy focused people who actually did work as lieutenant governors. So, you know, th- there's lots of different ways that this can look. Of course, Janine Hampton pretty famously didn't do much of anything while in office, both because she wasn't tasked with anything by the Bevan administration and, you know, seemed like, uh, I don't know, uh, that maybe she was opposed to the government doing any work in the first place. So that that's kind of what happened with Janine Hampton. I think what she's most known for is when she was mad at Bevan for firing her chief of staff. Yes, who then went on to become a uh, state senator, which yes. is a real joy for us. Yes, that's probably the thing she's most known for. But I do think that whenever that was going on, I think that brought like a higher level of visibility um, to the fact that she wasn't really doing much anyway. I think that that was kind of the comeback that Matt Bevan himself had, like where well, you're not even really doing anything. So uh, yeah, that was that was kind of weird. Um, anyways, the, the, yes, the lieutenant governor has been deployed in lots and lots of different ways in Kentucky over the past few decades. And, you know, lieutenant government, ha- lieutenant governor 
Coleman had been filling a specific role in the cabinet in the same way that Steve Pence did. However, I think, you know, I don't know what the future holds for her, but if I were to guess, I would say something closer to like Crit Lou Allen or Jerry Abramson, where she's taking on a specialized role, doing special projects. I think she said she wanted to focus on economic development, but but I think that her, her future as lieutenant governor probably looks a lot more like that than it did uh, when she was serving as, as a cabinet secretary. Uh, Jasmine, do you see anything? I mean, uh, the fact that she's leaving her role as the education secretary, do you think that that's concerning? Do you have any, uh, does that, what, what do you think when you hear that? Well, I don't know. I was going to ask you if you have any guesses for why that might've happened, because honestly, I don't really know. I don't think I see it as concerning, but I also am not sure why she stepped down. Yeah, I mean, there wasn't really much of an explanation as to why she was leaving her job. Uh, You know, there's part of me that thinks like, okay, well, maybe the Bashirs were like trying to figure out the best way to move forward with the re-election. And maybe they like gave Jacqueline Coleman the choice. uh, We want to keep you for one of these two things. And she picked Lieutenant Governor. I don't know if that happened, but it could have. I I don't really have any insights uh, and and anything would be a guess like that was a guess. Uh, But Mm -hmm. I mean, it seems plausible. Uh, I don't know. But one thing that I do think uh, I have heard is that like, oh, well, she's losing the only job um, she has. And yes, it's true that Lieutenant Governor doesn't have a lot of enumerated you know, responsibilities, but that doesn't mean that lieutenant governors don't do anything. Uh, you know, I, and again, I point to the example of J.R. Abramson and Kurt Lou Allen, uh, who did not have a cabinet secretary level job, but still did big jobs while lieutenant governor. So just because she's not doing this job anymore, doesn't mean she's just like sitting around. Uh, that is, that is certainly not the case. Um, I think she certainly has uh, stuff to do. It just will look a little different in the rest of the Bashir term and in a potential second term for Andy Bashir. Make sense? Mm-hmm. All right. All right, Jasmine. Well, that's the that's what's up with Jacqueline Coleman. I wanted to touch on that because that was news. A lot of people flagged this for us. Um, let's move on a little bit to talk about Heaven Hill. So tell us what's going on with the union workers down there in, uh, is it Bardstown, I think? Yeah, so this has been going on for a while, and we haven't really done like a full story on it, but... The news this week is that Heaven Hill Distillery finally reached an agreement with union workers for a five-year contract after weeks of striking and months of contract negotiations. So Heaven Hill is the fourth largest spirit supplier in the country. They make Evan Williams, Elijah Craig, and a lot of other well-known products um over 400 workers went on strike after 96 percent of the union employees rejected the contract proposal offered on september 9th contract negotiations have been going on for like about six months and during negotiations over the summer heaven hill signaled that it wanted to assign new hires to non-traditional schedules that would include weekend work. And the United Food and Commercial Workers Union, um, their local 23D president said that Heaven Hill was like really vague about what the weekend shifts would look like, how widespread, 
widespread they would be and how it would affect existing workers if weekend shifts couldn't be covered by the new employees. And so that raised a red flag with the union workers and that led to a walkout. Earlier last week, it definitely seemed that negotiations had stalled as Heaven Hill said that it would be hiring permanent replacement workers. So things didn't look good early last week. However, they have come to an agreement now that new contract includes an increase in the company's contribution to healthcare plans, an increase in their 401k match, fair scheduling, and that has to do with these weekend shifts. Um, and it would also cap their hours. They would get more paid vacation, a holiday time off, and up to a $3.09 per hour raise. It looks like employees are going to be going back to work and that things turned out okay. You know, I think that the big dispute here, I think, was over their health insurance plans and then this like weekend work thing. And I, I think the reason that this is happening is because the global demand for bourbon is even higher than it was a few years ago. And bourbon sales increased by a pretty large percentage in the last year and a half, like despite bars being closed for part of that time. So I think the demand is what drove heaven Hill to try to do weekend shifts and, and whatever they were trying to do, but clearly um, employees didn't want that. And the union didn't want that. And so finally, after months and months, they've come to an agreement. I mean, all, of course, I think you're spot on in saying that the increase in bourbon demand led to something like this. Uh, you know, the the uh, need for more workers, the need for more work to be done. Uh, and of course, the, the, the leadership of the company wants to increase profits instead of spread them around to workers, which is right. how it kind of works. Um, but, uh, you know. Jasmine, have you heard of uh, Striketober? Is that something that you're familiar? Have you heard anybody say that uh, this month? I've heard that before, yes. Yeah, yeah. I think that th- there was like, I guess it's this thing that there's like a lot of strikes taking place right now in October. Uh, and, you know, I think there's just, just like, this is kind of a moment when workers and unionized workers have a lot of power. And I will say like, as this kind of moved forward, it, it you know, whenever Heaven Hill announced that they were going to start hiring replacement workers, um, I was like, wow, it looks like they're going to lose. But then you mentioned here that they did get a contract with a, a lot more. There's, you know, paid pay vacation and holiday time off. I guess that that goes to what they were talking about with, with weekends potentially. Um, and then a lot more money. Uh, which, you know, I think that that's that's how it goes. It's a negotiation. And even though it seemed a little heady right there, the workers are walking away with better jobs than they had before. So that's, you know, what you hope for as a worker when you go on strike. And it looks like those Heaven Hill folks were able to get it. So so good for them. I'm glad that, you know, all the people who are good Democrats or, or good, uh, you know, good labor supporters um, who enjoy Heaven Hill uh, bourbon or Heaven Hill spirits are now able to drink them guilt free once again. So <laughs> uh, raise a glass of what is it like Elijah Craig? They're, they're good one, I guess. Evan Williams. Yeah. 
don't don't get that the the base level heaven hill stuff i would just avoid that altogether um but yeah uh good stuff from good stuff there all right jasmine thank you for that let's move on to talking about the omnibus abortion bill which is something that is potentially going to make its way through the legislature this year so republican representative nancy tate was just one was one of just a few republicans to unseat a democrat incumbent in 2018 2018 of course saw a big uh well i think democrats actually added like three or four seats in the 2018 midterm and and would have actually i think added at a lot more except for so many people retired so republicans won a lot of open seats but only a few republicans actually were able to unseat democratic incumbents but nancy tate was one of those and she's in meade county and i think her district includes a bit of breckenridge county or or maybe hancock county somewhere around not hancock i don't remember the names of the counties along the ohio river west of louisville but that is the area where she is um and, and really she won her race in 2018 based on a single issue and that is abortion she has been one of the leading voices opposing abortion in the kentucky legislature and this year is she's a leader driving for what she's calling an omnibus bill, which attempts to make it even more difficult for people to access abortion in Kentucky. So Wednesday of last week, Representative Tate introduced some of her bill to the Interim Joint Committee on Veterans, Military Affairs, and Public Protection. The actual text of the bill isn't available yet as uh, she hasn't actually filed it, but she did talk about some of the details in her testimony, and that's kind of how we know about it. A lot of the regulations appear to be around the use of, uh, you know, what's being termed chemical abortion, which is the use of pharmaceuticals to to uh, to have an abortion. Surgical abortions are, of course, becoming harder and harder to access in Kentucky and around the country. So more people are opting to use the safe and effective pharmaceutical option. Representative Tate's bill would make it much harder for patients to access this medication by forcing distributor or distributors, manufacturers, and physicians to obtain program certification before handling abortion medications, unquote. That's a, a quote from a, a news report in the News Enterprise. So I, I don't know. <laughs> I don't think that there are similar program certifications for handling like I mean, even like opioids, right? I don't think, you know, I don't think that there's, you have to pass a class to, to, to prescribe that, much less something safe and effective like, like this that doesn't have, you know, that, you know, we, not a lot of drugs have a, a course that you have to pass. This is clearly just trying to throw a roadblock into people that are trying to access abortions through these pharmaceuticals. Um, are you seeing this in any other way, Jasmine, or do you agree with me that this is mostly just a smokescreen? Yeah, I agree with you. Yeah, yeah. Uh, another thing this bill would uh, would do is prohibit the sale of fetal remains. Uh, that's This is something that gets said a lot by uh, opponents of abortion. I think that there was some sort of like weird hidden camera thing that was taken like out of context about people trying to to purchase fetal remains from Planned Parenthood several years ago. It's something that's been widely debunked, but of course not able, nothing's been able to break through uh, people's, you know, opposition to this issue. So fetal tissue is actually very valuable for medical research. A lot of medical breakthroughs that we've been able to to achieve in in the past, you know, half century have used fetal remains as um, a a major, major thing that the research has been performed on it's already illegal to sell fetal tissue for a profit so the the part of this part of the bill basically all it does is uh it it would ban the sale of fetal remains altogether so basically all this bill does is make medical research more difficult so 
The next thing that this bill would do is to create regulations for, quote, handling fetal remains, unquote. So that basically forces people to who have abortions to obtain what's called a stillborn certificate after 20 weeks of gestation. So, you know, I've talked about this before, but abortions after 20 weeks most often happen because of detection of fetal anomalies or, uh, you know, tragedies in utero or, you know, bad things happening. A lot of wanted pregnancies are terminated after 20 weeks. That's mostly who you're talking about when you get that far along in pregnancy. So this, you know, obtaining, obtaining a certificate is basically foisting paperwork onto people who are experiencing a huge tragedy in their lives. So, you know, that's that's great. I uh, hope you're happy about that, Representative Tate. So that's that's kind of how, that's the third part of this bill. And, and the last part of this bill is the bill would force minors who seek abortions to provide, quote, explicit parental consent, unquote. The, the ACLU actually responded to this point by saying, quote, the bill would not leave room for teenagers who live in abusive homes or who may have strained relationships with their parent or guardian who cannot safely disclose their pregnancies to their families, unquote, which of course goes to, you know, people who, you know, don't get along with their parents or are afraid of their parents or afraid of abuse or or whatever due to a, a potential pregnancy, but also, you know, terrible situations around incest and all kinds of other really bad reasons why some people seek abortions. And of course, that makes it even more difficult for, for people in really bad situations to, to receive um, this safe and sometimes necessary medical procedure. Also, the another thing about this part of the bill is that this, uh, you know, seeking explicit parental consent runs afoul. It explicitly violates the American Medical Association's Code of Ethics. So basically, you're putting doctors in a position where they have to, by law, violate their code of ethics. So that's another thing that this bill would do. So, you know, I'm not too surprised that this is happening. Um, abortion has been front and center of every legislative session since Republicans took charge in 2017. They've passed every abortion bill they've wanted to. And, you know, a lot of them have been thrown out in court. Some are still making their way uh, to the Supreme Court. But despite that, Republicans keep coming up with new ways to restrict abortion every single year. I don't know how many different ways you can slice it, you can create it, but it seems like every year there's an abortion bill that finds its way to the very, very front of the line in every legislative session that we've had since 2017. Is that your remembrance also, Jasmine? I think so. I can't remember in 2020, because it was like the first pandemic session, if one got through. But yeah. I think I maybe. Think, I think it did. I think that that was the born alive year. Uh, or you know what? It might have been that it didn't make it through. That they were like... They, they let it die because they realized that they had already passed like a thousand abortion restrictions in the years prior. Um, and then they would just pick up where they left off with this one in 2021. But but yeah, so maybe maybe the pandemic staved off one year, but but every other year, I think we've definitely yeah. had abortion uh, front and center. So anything specifically about this bill that sticks out to you that you think is potentially a problem? I mean, obviously, all of it's a problem, but but anything that you think explicitly bothers you more than anything else? Yeah, I think it's all a problem <laughs> and like you said about that last part of the bill it violates ethics rules so i guess you know do you think that this will be passed like as is i mean i know we haven't seen it but do you think it will do all these things or that some things might get taken out of it like um the part about fetal tissue 
for the purposes of medical research or or something like that. That will be a very interesting thing to see. I mean, obviously, as we've gone along, the bills can no longer be like abortion is banned because I think that bill is still technically on the books in Kentucky, even though it's stayed in court right now. So they have to find like different and more creative ways to like approach the abortion issue so that they can score political points with their base. So, you know, as the rationales and the things that they're doing become more and more esoteric, they have other and worse, in my opinion, like second order effects or other things that are happening because they're banning these bills. And it may be that medical researchers or, you know, uh, the the American Medical Association or something uh, like that will actually be able to break through to the Republican supermajority in a way that like the ACLU or Planned Parenthood couldn't when they were just banning abortion outright. So I do think that they can uh they, they might be able to accomplish it but but we will we will see uh yeah i i, I just think it's gonna pass who knows what it'll look like but we'll mm-hmm. certainly be talking about it as it happens all right jasmine uh shorter show today like we mentioned dealing with some technical issues but we are still doing the show and we're going to be talking about covid so last up here is COVID. COVID cases continue to decrease over the past week. The number of cases are down to about 1,350 in the seven-day average, actually a little bit lower than that after today's numbers, and about 1,500 in the 14-day average. Only about 50 counties are left in the red zone, so more than half are out. Uh, And uh, and of course, the red zone is 25 cases per 100,000 population. So, you know, most of the map is orange, or at least a plurality of the map is orange. And in addition, 12 counties are in the yellow zone, which is one to 10 cases per 100,000 population. And, and also, I just want to mention that not uh, that even the red counties aren't that red. The counties with the highest spread are along I-65. That's like Cumberland, Russell, and Adair counties, which only have you know, 60 to 75 cases per 100,000. That's a lot, but a lot lower than what we'd seen recently. And, and those are the worst off. The, the most of the red counties that are left are still between like 25 and 35. So I wouldn't be surprised if the trends continue the way that they are, that they would dip into the orange in the next few weeks. In our urban areas, Louisville's cases fell by 300 week over week from 1,500 to 1,800 to 1,500 from 1,800. In addition, only two people died from COVID last week in Louisville. That's the lowest total since July. So our death rate is, is really, really low, and our, our case count is continuing to fall. Lexington is down to a seven-day average of just 75 cases. That's two-thirds below their highest level in the Delta search. So our urban areas are definitely progressing uh, even better than the state as a whole. Hospitalization rates continue to decrease. We're down to 11, 13 per day, down almost 20% week over week and 57% lower than the all-time high. So hospitalizations definitely coming down. Kentucky's COVID deaths have plateaued at about 35 per day. Both the 7 and 14-day averages are at about that level, which indicates that the number isn't really changing that quickly. When the two numbers actually are the same, that means that nothing's really changing. Um, Of course, as cases continue to decline, we hope that deaths continue to decrease, but it's worth mentioning that the ratio of deaths to cases does seem to be kind of dependent on the vaccination rate. So, you know, even if cases are coming down in in the state as a whole, if they're only coming down in places where the high vaccine rate and people weren't already dying, uh, that the death rate may remain about the same. So there's ways that the, the way that we're used to seeing this might break down a little bit. That's something that we need to continue to track over time. And, and of course, death is the thing you want to avoid the most. So hopefully that number comes down soon. 
Speaking of vaccinations, they are not doing that well. We're down to about 2,200 or 2,600 new vaccinations per day. That's way off the high of 7,500 per day where we plateaued in the summer and into September. But we're still adding about uh, half a percentage point of our population to our vaccinated total each week. We are up to 62.5% with at least one shot and 54.5% who are fully vaccinated. Both of those metrics are up half a percent from last week. So things are getting a little bit better. But we are still a long way to go before we're back to the place that we were in the early part of the summer where we kind of felt like things were getting to be over and people were taking their masks off and everything else. Nearly every metric, though, is moving in the right direction. So with a little bit of patience and a little bit of luck, I think we're going to get there soon. So just continue to be vigilant. Convince your family members that haven't gotten the shot that they need to do it. And uh, yeah, continue to wear your masks, be smart, uh, and, you know, just, just keep doing what you're doing. And I think we're going to get to the end soon. Okay. That is it for the show this week. Jasmine, how can people get a hold of us? They can find us on Twitter and Instagram at my old KY pod. They can like our Facebook page and listen to our podcast on the podcast app of their choice. We also have a newsletter that comes out on Friday mornings. You can subscribe to it at tinyletter.com slash my old Kentucky newsletter. We also have a Patreon page where you can support what we're doing and get access to our border bonanza. You can do that at patreon.com slash my old Kentucky podcast. We are also part of the Dimcast network. All right, everybody. Thank you for listening, and we will see you next week. 